We are celebrating our 15-year anniversary as a church ministry here in Miami. This is what has kept me going these last 15 years and will keep me going in the next 15. That you are loved beyond success and failure. That in your success, God doesn't love you anymore. And in your failure, he doesn't love you any less. And so my, my, my challenge for all of us here today, as we look into our future, as we peek into our future, let us not do anything here that does not flow from an understanding of this love that Jesus has demonstrated to us. Well, good evening, church. My name is Pastor Carter. Uh, I am the lead pastor here at Crossbridge, and I'm grateful to be with you uh, this evening at the beginning of Thanksgiving. Who's excited about Thanksgiving? Anyone? I remember I've always, you know, from a, from a young age, I've always loved Thanksgiving for two reasons. Let's see if you can guess the reasons. The first reason is food. Yes. I'm preparing myself now, not going to eat anything but salads and deep breaths of air. This is my plan. So when I get to Thursday, I can eat everything in sight. The second reason I love Thanksgiving is football. Yes. Family and friends are also wonderful. They're on the list too. But I went for food and football. I love watching the football games. If any of you watch the games, you know that the Detroit Lions always play and the Dallas Cowboys always play. And at the Lions game, if you notice it this year, they always have a turkey that has six legs, and they eat it. I would not. I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. This is a science project. I don't know how they do it. I, it, can't, it can't be real, but they, they, they kind of act like it's real. I don't know. So check it out this year. It's the first game on Thursday. See if they have the six-legged turkey that they eat after the game. I'm excited about Thanksgiving, and I'm grateful that you're here with us on the launch of this uh, holiday week. And on Pledge Sunday, you know, this is a Sunday that we have positioned as a church for 15 years. And this time of the year is a time where we talk about vision and we talk about what God has done and where God is calling us to go. And the reason we do this is because, as Pastor Johnny shared, we believe that the church is not about the building, it's about the people. And it's about the people committed together, pledging together, sacrificing, giving of what God has given them for the building up of a gospel movement. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. What does it look like to build a gospel movement? How do you build a movement of the gospel among God's people so that it sweeps not only the community inside of the church building, but it sweeps across the city and it can change a region? And Do you believe that's even possible? And what is your place in a gospel movement. This is what we're going to be diagnosing this evening. Our passage will be in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me, and all of the notes will be in the Crossbridge Brickle app as normal. But let me share with you some of the history of the last 15 years of Crossbridge as a family of churches, as a movement. Back in 2008, there was a, a vision statement that was set, which is not the current vision statement we have now. Our vision statement now is that we want to bring renewal to cities through the power of the gospel. We're a family of churches seeking renewal through the power of the gospel in cities. Our original vision statement was similar. 
but different. Here's what the original drafted vision statement, mission statement was. To become a resource church that seeks the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of Miami and the world. So we just changed it a little bit. But that right there, that first part, a resource church, has always been on the heart of Crossbridge. That we want to be a church that resources its people, that resources other churches, that resources movement, so that the legacy that is left is not a brand. The legacy that is left is the gospel, a gospel movement, a gospel legacy. Some of the things that we've seen over the past 15 years, and if you're new to the Crossbridge family, I hope this encourages your heart. Uh, Crossbridge Church started with about 50 to 100 people at our original campus, which was in Pinecrest. Still is. There's still a campus there. And it was a 50 to 100 people across the whole Crossbridge family. Now there's about 1,500 people that call Crossbridge home over the course of 15 years. It went from one church to now five churches in Miami-Dade. There's a Crossbridge in Homestead, us here in Brickell, Key Biscayne, Miami Springs, and Pinecrest. And among the five churches are seven congregations because we have a Chinese church and we have a Spanish church as well. All in the past five years, God's grace Four of the five churches in our movement were revitalization works, meaning we didn't seek them out. They were churches that were struggling and were about to close their doors and came to Crossbridge and said, will you revitalize us? Will you replant us? Can we become a part of your family? And that's the story of Crossbridge, renewal and revitalization, seeking to build a movement. You've heard about the bridge movement over time. Just a couple months ago, we we celebrated Serve Week, where we served with the Bridge Movement, which is a family of churches that extends outside of Crossbridge. There are 16 churches in the Bridge Movement, from the churches in Brazil, us here in Miami, and one in Canada. And during the Serve Week, where we all served together across the world in this one week, 10,000 people were served, almost 1,700 volunteers mobilized. This was among the Bridge Movement. This has been building in the past three years. The Bridge Movement was just recently launched. And years ago, in 2014, Crossbridge was the catalyst to launching what's called City to City Miami, which is an organization that trains and recruits and resources pastors to plant churches in urban environments. And since 2014, Crossbridge, which has supported it financially and with people and has helped launch this organization, there have been dozens upon dozens, about 12 men or women are trained every year to plant churches, to revitalization, to start organizations, to do the work of ministry of multiple denominations. So Pentecostal, non-denominational, Baptist, all types of denominations have come through here because we've always believed as a church that it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. And so if we're going to be about a gospel movement, we need to be about other churches too. We need to be about unity among the body of Christ and supporting one another and praying for one another and caring for one another. And, and by God's grace and through his mercy, this is just some of the stories that have come out of the past 15 years. But we believe that the next 15 years is going to be exciting, that God is going to do new things. He's going to do fresh things in the life of our churches. And we believe that not just because we've been praying and seeking the Lord and he's been giving us vision. That's part of it. But it's also because God is revealing things. So our Crossbridge Pinecrest location is going to be launching a building that we've been building for the past five years that we are going to open next year. 
Crossbridge Homestead is going into year three, four of its church planting stage, which is one of the most pivotal years in all in church planting. Crossbridge Key Biscayne is the youth ministry is growing and there's stability that's rising up and more people are coming to the island to that church. Crossbridge uh, Miami Springs is the same. And here at Brickell, you know that if you've been here, we celebrated a prayer for eight years come to realization, which is that we have a 10-year lease and we've been renovating the church and the beginning of 2024, we're going to be renovating the lobby and the kitchen and the bathrooms. Can I get an amen? It's an exciting year, guys. It's an exciting year in the life of our church family this coming year. And we believe that what is going to launch us into the next 15 is not new buildings or renovated buildings or new programs that are launched. It's going to be the people that are committed to pledging their time, their talent, and their treasure, to giving their voice, to giving their wisdom, to giving their leadership to the life of this church so that a movement can sweep throughout our community, in our city, in our region. This is what we want to be about, building a gospel movement, leaving a gospel legacy. And this was not this idea and this, this desire to be a resource church and to build a gospel movement was not dreamed up in the mind of our board here at Crossbridge. This was not dreamed up by a, a group of pastors that have come together and said, this is what uh, we need to do, and this is a, what a resource church looks like, and why movement is important. It's actually found in Scripture. We see the churches in Scripture united together and about the gospel moving through a city, committed to one another, pledging all that God has given to them, being good stewards of what God has given them for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Jesus. The church that I want to share with you tonight, which is the kind of church that we desire to be, is the church in Ephesus. The churches in Ephesus were a resource church. And I said churches because this is important to understand. When you read the Bible in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes letters to different cities, to Philippi, of Philippians, to Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, to Corinth, book of Corinthians, and Ephesians. It's to Ephesus. That's because when Paul writes these letters, he's not writing to one singular church. He's writing to churches that are united, a family of churches, a movement of churches. And I tell you that because there was something miraculous happening in these cities and in Ephesus. And that was unity among churches and among the people of God. People that were historically divided, which we'll see in our passage this evening, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews. Historically divided, segregated, hostility, coming together in the church to form one community and one family. Churches that are in different parts of the city and have Certainly different philosophies of ministry and different, you know, styles of worship and different teachers and different things united together in the gospel, forming a movement that changed a city and a region. This is what took place in Ephesus. They were united on the power of the gospel. And we're going to look at this in the book of Acts because we get insight in Acts 19 into what was happening in Ephesus. Now, I want to set up briefly what the kind of city Ephesus was so you can understand how much of a miracle this was, this unity in the church and this movement of the gospel. Ephesus was a church that, or Ephesus was a city that was vibrant and thriving. It was growing. 
there were professionals that were coming in and out of the city because it was very easily accessible. And so there's a lot of trade that is happening. There's people doing business from all over the world passing in and through Ephesus. It was attracting all types of business. But really, Ephesus was known for tourism. Does it sound familiar? The thriving city, vibrant, growing, easily accessible, that's bringing in all types of business from people all over the world that are trading, but really it's known for tourism. It's Miami. You, if you ever talk to people outside of the U.S., uh, in particular outside of just Miami, even if you just go to Fort Lauderdale, and you say, uh, I'm from Miami, they're like, oh, South Beach, right? It's like, no, not South Beach. Like, yes, we have South Beach, so part of it, but it's just in the mind of people. It's like Orlando is Disney, you know? Miami is South Beach. We're known for our tourism, but we're thriving and vibrant and growing, and there's all types of business happening here. That was the same of Ephesus, and it's because Ephesus had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was an unbelievable structure. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was the largest building in the Greco-Roman world. And it was made out of almost entirely marble. Unbelievable. It was an epicenter for pagan worship, the worship of Artemis. But people would come not just on a pilgrimage to worship Artemis, they would come to see this structure. They would come to engage in the entertainment that was happening all around the temple and all of the festivities that took place in this city. And it is here in this city that the spiritual landscape is changed through the church. That pagan worship, people are throwing down their idols to Artemis. They're divulging, casting out their Practices of witchcraft and sorcery. Amazing what happens. It becomes a major hub for Christianity. An evangelism powerhouse. A training for Christian leaders. Ephesus. And it's not because there was a big building and a big church and there was all the really sharp marketing. It's because of the people inside the building. They were committed to one another. They had a conviction about the gospel. They were continual in prayer, and they were leading together. Let me tell you about Ephesus. Here's what happened. Verse 8 through 10. This is the Apostle Paul. We're reading about him and his time there. Acts 19, starting in verse 8, we read the following. And he, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul does what he normally does when he goes into a city to, to plant a church, to start his ministry. He goes into the synagogue. And so he goes into the synagogue because this is typically a, a, a safe place for him to go teach about Jesus being the Savior, the prophesied Messiah, that 
He died and he rose and he ascended from heaven. And he would reason from the Old Testament prophets and scriptures with the Jews that were prevalent in the synagogue. And so he does the same thing here in Ephesus. But it says after a few months, there's this contention that happens. There's this hostility that's boiling up towards Paul and to the message of the gospel and to people of the way. The way was a term that was given for Christians during this time. People that were followers of Jesus were called people of the way, the way of Jesus. And so Paul is like, I have a dilemma here. I'm trying to start a church. I'm trying to preach the gospel. I'm trying to see this movement of the gospel in a city. But now there's all this contention and hostility happening in the synagogue. So I need to find somewhere else to have church, somewhere else to preach and teach and reason with people and gather God's people together. And so he goes to what's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And there, for two years, he has church. And he reasons, and he teaches, and people come to worship, and that's where God's people gather. Now, you have to know something about the culture there. So scholars who have studied Ephesus have come to understand that Ephesus was a city where everything was taking place in the morning and in the late afternoon. So these lecture halls, the Hall of Tyrannus, would have been full in the morning with philosophers and scholars that would have been teaching and reasoning. You would go there and you try to learn something. You'd debate ideas. This is where you would go to, for YouTube and podcast. It was there in the Hall of Tyrannus in the morning. It's like our equivalent of the Hall of Tyrannus. So there is where people would go to exchange ideas in these lecture halls. But in Ephesus... Everything shut down after lunch in the early afternoon. They were a siesta culture, a take a nap in the afternoon culture. Can I get an amen? Amen. We need a little bit of siesta here in Miami. Go to your employer and just say, I think we should be more like Ephesus. Let's just take a two-hour break and nap right after lunch. I don't think it's going to go over well. But it, it does in Spain. It's wonderful in Spain. So... This was the type of culture that was happening in Ephesus, which means when Paul goes to the hall of Tyrannus and he plants the church, do you know what time is available? Nap time. It's the only available time. And so he goes to plant the church in this famous hall where Tyrannus and other scholars and philosophers would be arguing and debating and having their time slots. And he goes in and he plants a church more than likely, as scholars believe, during nap time, when everyone's taking a break from work and the whole city shuts down. But Paul believes something. He believes in the power of the gospel. That's attractional, transformative power that people will forsake a nap and a break and go to church. And it says that he continued this, holding church at an inopportune time, calling people to live counterculturally, to forsake their nap, and to praise and to worship and to reason and to come together in the middle of the day when everything else was shut down for two years. And did you hear what happened? Look what happened. Verse 10. So all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This church that started in the hall of Tyrannus, that spread to other churches in the city, 
that spread to people that were in the city for a season of time and moved to another city, that spread to the marketplace that was transforming people's lives, who were then moving to other parts of the region. This all started in this hall of Tyrannus at an inopportune time of people forsaking their naps to come into church. And the word of the Lord went to everybody in the entire region, all of Asia. There was unlikely unity. Both Jews and Greeks were hearing this message. Christianity was spreading. It was moving throughout the entire region of Asia because of what was happening in Ephesus. A gospel movement was sweeping a city and a region. Now, this is what happened, and this is what took place. And what I want to do this evening is look at four pillars that are necessary for gospel movement. Four pillars that were certainly present in Ephesus, and four pillars that God uses to birth a movement of the gospel for his name, and four pillars that could, listen to me, change Miami and our region. I really believe it. Here's the first pillar. A conviction of gospel power. The Apostle Paul believed that the gospel is power. Not that it has some power or that over time when you become more theologically deep, you can understand its power. No, that the gospel is power. When the gospel is preached, when the gospel is shared, when the gospel is discussed, there is power. And it will call people to countercultural living. It will call people to say, I'm not going to take a break and take a nap. I'm going to church. It will call people to do things that other people are like, why would you do that? Well, it's because the power of the gospel compels me. It's attractive, and it pulls people into its beauty and its power. I like to think of the gospel as a burning fire. It's a burning fire. Now, I myself am probably a diagnosed pyromaniac. I love fires. Does anyone else here love a fire? Like, I love it as a kid. I loved lighting matches, and I loved, you know, lighters. I loved all things fire, and I love making a fire. A couple years ago, when we moved into our home, one of the first purchases that I bought was a fire pit. I went to Home Depot. There's like one month of the year when they sell fire pits. I went to Home Depot. I got a fire pit, and I put it in the back of the yard. It's on the side of my house right now. It's ready. In fact, I have wood already for the five nights that we're going to have cold weather. I'm ready, guys. I have this thing where when the weather gets to 65 degrees, I make a fire. 65 degrees or lower, I'm making a fire. In the morning with coffee, in the evening, I love fires. Now, I went to Florida State in Tallahassee here in Florida, and it does kind of get cold there for Florida standards. There's like, you know, so you have to heat up your car before you get in it. It's like cold weather problems, only for a little bit of time. And some of you are from the Northeast and the Midwest. You're like, that's not cold. It's like, it's cold for me, okay? It was cold there. And in the winter, when it was cold, okay, sweaters and everything, you know how it is. All I wanted to do was go make bonfires. Like campfires are great, but bonfires, guys, come on. Especially after Christmas, 
when you take the Christmas trees, I'm not prescribing this. This is dangerous, okay? But Christmas trees, they make a huge fire. And so we would gather together, all of our friends, and we would go in the winter all the time, and we'd make bonfires. And there was something I've noticed about bonfires. And maybe if you think about bonfires that you've been a part of, you'll think about it too. When you build a bonfire, it has some type of attractional quality to pull people in. Like if you're at a, a park or at a beach or you're somewhere where you can have fires, okay, be allowed, and then you, you have a bonfire, people come. Like people gather. Small little campfires, they don't have the same attractional quality, but bonfires, they pull people in. People want to be around them. They want to see what's happening at the bonfire. Now, the gospel is a burning fire. We do not provide the power to the gospel. We do not provide the warmth of the gospel. We do not provide the light that cast out the darkness. The gospel is power. The gospel is the warmth of God's love for his people. The gospel is the light that casts out the darkness. Jesus is the light. We don't provide any of that. But what we do provide, what God calls us to bring, is wood to throw on the fire. We throw our wood on the fire so that it can burn bright, so that that campfire becomes a fire. You see, the, the, the fire in a campfire and a bonfire is not different. It's the same fire, same ability to warm. It's the same light. It's the same power. But the more wood, the bigger the fire, the more attraction comes to experience that warmth and that light and that power. And our call as God's people is not to provide the warmth. It is not to provide the power. It is not to provide the light. That is contained in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But our call is to put the wood on the fire and believe that it is the power to change people's lives. To believe that people will forsake their naps and come to church. That people will forsake their idols and come to Jesus. That people will cast down all of the other delusions of life and come to experience Jesus. And our call is to put the wood on the fire. To believe in its power and offer what we have so that God can use it. The next three pillars are three things that I think are wood that God calls you to throw on the fire. On the gospel so that it can burn bright and the size can grow to attract people to see the power of Jesus. The second pillar is continual prayer. Paul speaks about prayer 41 times in his letters. There's over 650 prayers in the Bible. I, I think that if you did an exercise where you took your Bible and you just opened it somewhere, you would either land on a prayer or you'd shortly read about someone praying. Prayers all over the Bible. Like, there are two things that are the bedrock of the Christian faith. It's reading God's words to us in his scripture, and it's prayer. It's what does God say to me? Let me read his words, and let me talk to God. Prayer. Continual prayer. That may sound like, well, I mean, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Like, what is the thing I can do? Now, the first thing you can do if you're convinced and, and convicted of the gospel power and you want to be a part of a gospel movement, the first thing you can do is pray continually. Ian Bounds, who was an author, an attorney, and a pastor, quite the life, he said this, 
God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. Let me read that again. God shapes the world by prayer. The more prayer there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. If you want to change the world, you want to change your city, you want to change a community, pray. Pray. You know, there's a lot of speak and desire uh, for revival. And it's, it's kind of been more popular, at, at least in terms of the Christian consciousness and leaders speaking about revival and desiring revival, which we all should. We really all should. But one of the things that I was thinking about this week, the centerpiece of revival every time is prayer. Every time. And revival delays because prayer decays. Revival delays because prayer decays. Because we're not praying as people continually. God shapes the world by prayer. Revival always comes. The change of a city and a people and a country and a region, it comes when people are committed to continual prayer. When they pray in the morning, in the evening, in affliction and distress, in blessing and prosperity, when they pray when they're anxious, burdened by God, when they feel like God is distant, when you don't know what to say, so the Spirit prays for you, when you pray when you're happy, when you're tempted, when you have big decisions to make, when you've sinned, you catch the theme. Continual prayer. When we are a people that are continually praying and praying for God's movement, for a movement of the gospel, for His church and for His people, for ourselves, for others. I really believe that a church that is stagnant or faith that is stagnant, you will find that there is occasional prayer. Maybe prayer before a meal, prayer at night before you go to bed, prayer when you're really in need. If your faith is stagnant, and if a church is stagnant, it probably means that there is occasional prayer. If you're in a place in life and you're like, I I'm, I'm struggling, I feel like God is distant, I don't feel spiritually connected, I'm confused, I have a lot of doubts, what should I do? Pray. What does David do? If you ever read the Psalms, so many of the Psalms go like this. David saying, God, where are you? You've forsaken me. Where are, where are you leading me to? Are you going to allow my enemies to prevail over me? When David felt distant, when he felt frustrated, when he was up against obstacles, what he did was pray. Prayer continually. We need to be people of prayer. A movement church is a church that has people that are praying continually. Revival delays because prayer decays. Third, third pillar is that we are committed to growing together. Committed to growing together. You see, in Ephesus, church wasn't an event. Church wasn't an option among a sea of other options. Church was at the most inopportune time of the day, and you had to commit to it. 
You had to commit to not go and take a nap, to not go take a break like everybody else in your work, but go to church. It was the priority every single day to be with God's people, to take the sacraments together, to listen to the teaching, to pray, to praise, to gr gather together, to grow together, to hash out things. To use your skills, to resource other people, to be resourced by somebody, to have someone pray for you, for you to pray for someone else. This was the priority. And it was people from all different walks of life committing to grow together. You see, commitment to grow together doesn't just happen. It takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. We live in a, a sea of sirens competing for our attention. Do you ever feel like it's like so many things are always coming our way? So many people and so many sources and outlets and things are telling us what to value. That you need to network with these people. You need to invest your money here. You need to give to this. You need to use your time here. You need to do this in your career to jump that step to get to that step. You need to watch this show as soon as possible before it gets spoiled online. You need to do all of these different things. There's all types of different things that people are telling us that we need to prioritize and we need to focus on and we need to give to. And we're pulled all over the place. We are pulled everywhere. And friends, the reason that I think that church, and when I say church, I, don't, I, I mean the people committing to grow together. The reason that there's a decrease in engagement across the U.S. is because church has become about this moment right here. It's become about the sermon. It's become about the content. And when church becomes about the content and it becomes about the sermon, it's easy to make it an option. It's easy to treat it like an event. Because if you miss it or if there's something you deem better, then you can just get it online. Or listen to another pastor that you think is a fantastic preacher and get the content online. Church was never meant to be about the sermon. The sermon matters. It's my calling. I have value it. But the, the church is not meant to be about the sermon. It's meant to be about the people that are gathered together, committed together to hear from the sermon, to praise God together to pray together, to take the sacraments together, to celebrate baptisms together, to proclaim Jesus and all the different spaces that we occupy outside of Sunday together, to disciple one another, to resource one another, to be resourced by other people. We are called to be committed together. And the church was not an idea that the apostles had when Jesus ascended into heaven. Like, hey, what do we do now? Like, maybe we should do like something called church? I mean, they didn't come up with the idea. Do you know who came up with, with church? Jesus. It's his church. We are often called the body of Christ. This is Jesus' church. We are called to commit to one another so we can grow as the body of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul uses language like this in Scripture. He says, you are many members of one body. You have a function. You have a role. 
You have a place in the body. If you, by grace through faith, have come to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, He's Savior and Lord, you believe in the gospel, you've experienced its attractional power, you've been warmed by the love of God, you've been powerfully changed by God's forgiveness, you've seen the light of Jesus cast out darkness, then you are part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body. And you're called to commit to the rest of the body. You know, one of the most frustrating things, and this, you, I've, I've been feeling this more and more as I get older, is when part of your body doesn't work the way it should, right? When it's not working right. Like right now, my shoulder is a little bit off, and I'm, like I'm constantly feeling it, and I don't want to lift it over my head because I feel like it could break off. You know, when a part of your body is not working right, it, it, it hurts. It affects the rest of you. And this is the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses. Because you're a part of the body whether you want to be or not, if you believe in Jesus Christ. You can't be like, I opt out of that one. No, you can't opt out. You're a part of the body. And when you're not functioning in the way that God has gifted you and called you, you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting the rest of the body. Because you have a calling. That's going to be the fourth pillar. You have gifting. You have a voice. You have leadership. You have all of these talents and time and treasure and things that God has given you as gifts to steward, not just for yourself, not just for your family, but for the family of God that you're a part of. You're called to commit, to grow together. You know, the Gallup poll has been doing studies for the past eight decades on the church, on church engagement. And you can imagine it has been on the decline. It was steady up until about 2005. About 72% of Americans were engaged in church. It has gone down in those 15 years slowly, but it's gone down from 72 to 47. In 15 years, 72% to 47%. And it's not recovering. It's still declining, church engagement. It used to be that people would go to church once or twice a month. I mean, not once or twice a month. They'd go weekly or every other week. You know, things happen. All of us have different things, business, travel, things that pull us aside. We get sick, whatever. The new trend in highly urban environments, the new metrics have come out, is that most people that are consistent and committed to church and to a, a body of believers, they go once every six weeks. That's the trend. And here's why. There's a data point that's very interesting. It's because, I think, my analysis, because 44% of people would prefer to worship on their own than with somebody else. So when you have a culture and when you have a message and, and you feel like, I don't really want to worship with anyone else, I'd rather just worship with myself, then there's no need to be around other people. There's no need to commit to other people. But we were not called into isolation. Our faith is not isolated. We are called to be part of the body of Christ. You can't opt out of membership in the body of Christ. Which means we're supposed to worship together. We're supposed to commit together. We're supposed to grow together. We're supposed to challenge each other. This is our calling, and it is for our good. The church is to be a place where you are resourced, and then you resource others. That we are using our gifts and abilities and time and talent and treasure all for each other so that the movement of the gospel can happen here 
and it will spill out into every other corner and crevice of this city, and I pray the region. I believe in gospel power, but I believe it takes people that are continual in prayer and committed to growing together. The church becomes a people that you are called to worship with. It's not about a sermon alone. It's about being together and committing to grow together. And what I'm saying to you is this. I'm not asking you to say yes to every church offering, okay? Like, I guess I got to say yes to everything. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you have to miss church for any certain reason, that you need to feel guilt. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that God is going to, he's going to speak uniquely to your heart and to your mind on what it looks like for you to take the next step in committing to growing with your church family. And I want to challenge you to take that step. Maybe it looks like inviting a friend or being more consistent on Sunday evening. Maybe it looks like joining a small group. Maybe it looks like going to that side-by-side women's event or the men's event. Or maybe you've been wanting to go to social hour to get connected and you need to take that step to social hour. Maybe it's signing up to serve on a team here to help support the church. Maybe it's taking the next step in your generosity of finances. What is it that you can take your next step that God is stretching in you, that calling you, that you can say, God, I'm going to take that next step. See, there's a reason that when we ask you to pledge, we ask you to pledge not just your treasure. We want you to pledge your time and your talent because we, as pastors and leaders and elders and deacons here at the church, we want to walk with you to help you discover what part of the body are you and what gifts do you have and how can they be used because it's for your joy and for the joy of others for you to discover that. And then lastly... The fourth pillar is the natural outflow of people that are convicted of gospel power, continual in prayer, and growing together and committed to that is co-leadership. You see, the Apostle Paul started this church in the Hall of Tyrannus, and he was leading and he was preaching, but he was not alone. And it was not led by just pastors alone. In fact, Paul only lived there for seasons of time. He was moving in and out of different cities. There were all types of people that were leading in Ephesus. There were traders and cooks and teachers and government officials and scholars and doctors and construction workers and creatives. There were prophets and prophetesses that were coming out of the temple of Artemis that were coming to faith in Jesus and leaving their work and having nothing and saying, how can I be used? All types of people were leading in Ephesus which birthed this movement. You know that there's this uh, phrase in, that Peter shares, that we are a priesthood of believers. We call this the priesthood of all believers, which means that you have a holy calling from God, a holy calling from God, and that you are a priest. Have you ever introduced yourself to somebody as a priest? You are. Scripture says that you're a priest. We're a priesthood together. Th- that is so shocking because there are two things about priests that I want to highlight. The first is that they are given an unbelievable blessing and right. And that is the blessing and right to be in the most sacred and holy space before God in his presence. The priests. In, in the temple, there, there was this room that was called the Holy of Holies. It's where God's presence 
dwell at the Ark of the Covenant, and it was covered by a veil. Only the high priest could actually go in there. The other priest could just be in that sacred space before the Holy of Holies. But the high priest could go into that space. It was so holy and was so sacred that when the high priest would go in, they would tie a rope around his leg just in case he died before the presence of God so they could pull him out. When Jesus died, Matthew tells us, when he dies on the cross, when he says, it is finished, there was an earthquake. And the veil that covered the Holy of Holies in the temple, it tore in two. Do you see what's being said? Because Jesus died and he finished the work necessary for your salvation and your forgiveness for the reconciliation and restoration of your relationship with God, because Jesus finished that on the cross, you are a priest. There's no veil between God's presence. There is nothing blocking you. You don't have to tie a rope around your leg when you go to God. You can go to him at any time. He is there before you. He not only calls you a priest, he calls you a friend. He wants you to speak to him. He wants you to be near to him. He wants you to come into his presence. You're a priest. But there's another very obvious aspect of being a priest. And that is priests built God's house. They worked in God's house. And so if you are a priest, you have the blessing and the right to come before God's presence at any moment, at any time, with no fear, nothing blocking you, by grace through faith in Jesus. And you are called to build God's house, to be a leader. To leverage your time and your talent and your treasure, your ideas and opportunities for God's glory and his name through his house, through his church, with his people. You are called to be a priest, to discover your place as a member in the body of Christ. You see, in Ephesus, they were committed to these four things, and these four things were happening in the life of the church, and what took place was revival. As we read, the word of the Lord went throughout all of Asia. There was miraculous unity, but there was something unbelievable that happened in Ephesus shortly after all of this was taking place. Before it really spread to the whole region, here's what happened in the city. There was this move of the gospel through the church that was reaching all these different places in the city that all these people that were worshiping these false gods that were in pagan worship, that were worshiping Artemis and doing witchcraft and sorcery, and they had these magical books that they were studying and doing spiritual practices off of. There was a huge group of these people that came to faith in Jesus, like massive, a huge part of the city. And they gathered together, and they took all of their books, and they threw them into a huge pile, and they made a bonfire. They lit them up. And it was so shocking that they were going to burn these books, that they were forsaking their old way of life, that people were saying, what is, what is happening? What has happened? Why would they do that? What, what has caused these people to burn these books and to build this bonfire? The gospel was changing people's lives, and people were being attracted to the stories of transformation. They were burning the books. You see... I think that when we think about gospel movement, we have to know that we have to be convicted of gospel power. We have to be continual in prayer. We need to be committed to growing together. 
And we also need to value co-leadership and find our place to lead. It could be behind the scenes. It could be in a group or a team. It could be something that God gives you. But for many of us, we have to start by burning the books. We have to ask God, God, what are the idols in my life that have been distracting me from worshiping you with my whole life? What are the idols that I need to cast down? What are the delusions that I need to burn up? What are the the practices that have been leading me away from building a gospel movement that I need to burn up? What are the things that have been causing me to doubt the power of the gospel? What are the things that have been causing me to not commit to your people? What are the things that have been calling me not to lead but to lead in other spaces? What are the things that I need to put in the fire and burn? How do you burn the books? And it's costly. It really is costly, and it feels costly to burn things and to throw, cast down idols. In fact, there's a detail in Acts 19 when it says they burn the books. I love this detail. It says that when they calculated how much it cost, all those books, it was 50,000 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to several million dollars. It was costly for them to do that. And I want to challenge you with this. If God gives you insight into something that you need to burn up, something you need to surrender before him, something you need to give or pledge, and there's a resistance in you, it feels too costly, that's exactly what you need to give up. It's exactly what you need to burn. That's exactly what you need to give to him because it's holding you back and it's affecting you. It's an idol. You see, this is what took place in Ephesus. They burned the books I want to close with something that Jesus says. You know that Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 through a vision given to John. John recounts the words of Jesus, and he says the following. And I pray that this would be the thing that roots us. This is the bedrock of everything that we do, that we'd never depart from this. Jesus says this to those in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Like, you have done it. You have continued to work and to toil, and you're standing against evil. Great job, Ephesus. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Wow. That you have not, and that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. My prayer is this, friends. As we pledge our time and talent and treasure for 2024, as we consider how we need to continue to engage in prayer continually and commit to growing together and find our place as leaders, that beneath it, that what supports it and fuels it would be the love of Jesus. That we would never become a church and a people that are trying to work for God and are trying to do a whole bunch of great stuff for God and we fail to remember our first love. Would we return to our first love? Every day we need to be people that return to our first love and not abandon the love of Jesus because, friends, you're a priest and you have the presence of God available to you by grace through faith. And you can go to God at any moment, at any time, for anything. And would we be those people that go to the love of Jesus before anything that we do for Jesus? Amen?